Some preachers have a real gift in dealing with the immediate. Uh, they'll respond to media stories or they'll respond to waves of, of popular opinion. Uh, and they'll, they'll have this gift for, for recognizing these waves and, uh, and really riding them uh, and preaching. The, the kind of preachers I'm thinking of are the, the kind of people who maybe took the opportunity of the Y2K syndrome. Do you remember that point when we th all thought the world was going to end? Uh, and, and maybe that the preacher would have cottoned on to that and, and taken that opportunity to preach about the end of the world. Or perhaps this summer, to bring it a little bit closer in time to now, that when it rained so very, very, very much, this preacher would have found themselves preaching uh, on Noah and drawing out themes there of God's judgment and God's grace. Or, or maybe even this preacher would, would have something in particular to say about the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. There are preachers, as I say, who, who have this gift of, of reading the immediate moment and responding to it. If you've been around Kirkpatrick Memorial for any length of time, you'll know that I'm not that kind of preacher. Um, I don't seem to have that particular knack of, of hearing a Friday news story and turning it into a Sunday sermon. I, I'm not knocking that style of preaching at all. I think it's a, a wonderful gift for those who have it. One of the reasons why I don't make that uh, a central aspect of my preaching is that I believe I have a, a slightly different task than to respond to each passing immediate moment in our culture. I believe that my primary task as a preacher of God's word is to bring you, week by week, God's eternal, unchanging word. My task is to bring you that word in such a way that you see that you live in God's world. And that you begin to understand your life in God's world and to see it through God's eyes. Some people might talk about uh, adopting a biblical worldview. That's exactly what I would long for, for the person who comes week in, week out here to Kirkpatrick Memorial. That you begin to understand the world through God's eyes. And I believe that the best way for us to, to find this biblical worldview is to enter into God's word. Into the whole story of it. And to grow in love with God who reveals himself there in his word. Why have I gone to all the trouble of telling you that this evening? Well, it's to avoid a misunderstanding. This evening, we're beginning a series in these final chapters of Genesis, in the story of Joseph. And unless you've spent the last six months on some other planet, you'll know that there's been a huge surge of public interest in Joseph in Britain in the last six months. Ever since the BBC's Any Dream Will Do singing competition, which dominated the Saturday night television schedules, and maybe many of your Saturday nights. I watched quite a bit of it, I have to admit. Ever since then, Joseph has appeared as, as a, a larger-than-life figure uh, in the British culture. Maybe you've already booked tickets to go and see Lee Mead play Joseph in Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. If not, I'm reliably informed on a website that he is performing in the Adelphi Theatre, has been since the 17th of July, and he's booking right through until the 5th of January, 2008. So there's a, a tip. I know some folks in the congregation 
went over to, to watch the, the previous uh, one, The Sound of Music. Um, so I don't know. Anybody planning to go and see Joseph? Nobody's admitting to it. Why are we then going to study these final chapters of Genesis this autumn? Are we simply jumping on the Joseph bandwagon? Is it because we're so taken with Lee Mead and everything that he's up to that we want to, we want to find out a little bit about the, the character that he's going to play? No, of course not. We're studying these passages because we're so taken with our God that we want to discover everything that he has revealed about himself. We're so taken with his son, Jesus Christ, that we want to discover everything that we can that will equip us to be better followers of Jesus. Before we pick up in Genesis here, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that we could somehow step out of time. If you were here last Sunday morning, you'll have seen Doctor Who's TARDIS, so that, that'll give you an image to work with. Imagine if you can step out of time somehow that you could remove yourself from this space-time continuum that we live in and have a, a vantage point where you could view the history of the human race. I wonder what we'd see there as we look down on human history. I think that we'd see that the very focal point of human history is the cross of Jesus Christ. We'd see that everything before Jesus built up inexorably to, until the cross. I think we'd see that everything since has been influenced by and, and flows from the cross. Something that would surprise us, I think, and amaze us though, is that, that the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ, as well as moving forward from the cross, reaches back. Of course, any of us here who are in Christ this evening understand how the cross uh, reaches forward, how the influence of the cross reaches right into the present day and will reach beyond. We know that in our own lives. Our lives have been changed by the cross of Jesus Christ. But I think it would be the backwards shadow of Calvary that would surprise us. It would amaze us, I think. We'd look back and we'd see Adam and Eve clothed in animal skins. We'd remember how it was the blood of an animal shed for them that covered their sin and their shame. And there'd be a first place where we see a shadow of the cross. We'd see, as we watch from a distance, Abraham and his son Isaac ascending Mount Moriah. We'd see Isaac or we'd hear him turn to his father and question him. The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb? And we'd hear Abraham's reply, God himself will provide. God himself will provide the sacrifice. And again, we'd see there another shadow of the cross. But perhaps nowhere more clearly in the whole of the Old Testament, except perhaps maybe at the Day of Atonement, nowhere would we see that shadow of the cross more clearly than in the life of Joseph. 
you'll come to see when we look at the life of Joseph together, it's almost as though the biblical writer already knew the story of Jesus. And that at many points along the way in the story that he deliberately paralleled what he was telling us about Joseph to the life of Jesus. Let's get stuck in then into the biblical text and learn about Joseph and more about Jesus our Savior. We read chapter 37 a moment ago and that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this evening. But we're going to begin with a very quick glance at some of the passage that give us the necessary background. If you were here with us last spring, you'll know that we followed a series then in the life of Jacob. Uh, we learned about this, this crooked deceiver whom God in the end made straight. Uh, we've learned of this man who deserved nothing, but to whom God promised everything and gave so much. You can read all about Joseph in Genesis 25 to 35. But then we come to Genesis chapter 36. And we're told the story of Esau. So Jacob gets about 10 chapters, give or take. And Esau gets one. You'll notice there in chapter 36 verse 1 a kind of a heading. This is the account of Esau. And if you know Genesis well, you'll know that that's a, a repeated formula. It shows us that we're entering a new section of the book. In total, it occurs 10 times throughout the book of Genesis, dividing it into 10 sections, or toledot in the Hebrew. The first toledot begins in chapter 2, verse 4. It's the account of the heavens and the earth. The second, in chapter 5, verse 1, gives us the account of Adam. The third, in chapter 6, verse 9, gives us the account of Noah, and so on. And now we've come to the ninth and penultimate section of the book, the account of Esau. So it really tells us of Esau's family tree. Now it only takes a glance at this chapter to see that you'll be relieved that we didn't read it. It's not the most riveting passage in Genesis. And the most obvious question I think as we just look for a moment at this ninth Toledot recorded in chapter 36 must be just why? Why is it here? Why is this recorded at all? If Jacob is the son on whom the promises of God rest, why bother with chapter 36, this account of Esau's family? It seems to me that it's as though it's God's will that Esau and his family aren't forgotten in all of this. Although the narrative focuses but on, on Jacob, the covenant carrier, the other brother isn't forgotten. And that's a pattern that's, that's repeated itself in Genesis. If you turn back to chapter 25, you'll see that the same was true in the previous generation. The narrative focused on Isaac, but the record also gives us an account of Ishmael, Abram's other son. And the only conclusion I can come to is the, that the rejected sons in both generations, Abraham's son and Isaac's son, they're still given their place in the history of God's people because they too somehow live under God's blessing. Now, Esau doesn't live under God's blessing in the same way that Jacob does. And the chapter actually flags that up for us. 
gives us again a couple of clues why Esau doesn't live under God's blessing as Jacob did. We're reminded straight away in verse 2 that Esau took his daughters, or sorry, took his wives from the daughters of the families of Canaan. That's in stark contrast to Jacob. Jacob keeps himself pure, avoids marrying into the pagan families, but not, not Esau. He, he intermarries with the pagan Canaanites. And then we see in verse 8 that Esau settles in the hill country south of Seir. Now the hill country of Seir is southeast of the Dead Sea. So here again he stands in contrast to Abram, Isaac and Jacob. They stay in the promised land. But Esau leaves. God's promises regarding this land aren't important to him. And yet somehow in his grace God still gives Esau a nation. That shouldn't surprise us because actually that's what God had promised to his mother Rebecca when she conceived the two twins. You can read that prophecy in chapter 25 verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from it within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. So here we have Israel emerging as a nation, but Edom, Esau's nation, emerging in parallel. The people of Israel never forgot this, this relationship they had with Edom. So whenever Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom, some 400 or more years later, he was requesting safe passage for their journey from, from Egypt to the promised land. And he begins his message saying this, this is what your brother Israel says. Because of their shared history, Moses commands the people in Deuteronomy chapter 27, don't abhor the Edomite, for he's your brother. Even when God eventually pronounces a judgment on Edom through the prophet Obadiah, it's still in the context of kinship. He warns, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. So what's the final verdict very quickly on Edom? Well, two things. Firstly, this, this chapter goes to great lengths to tell us about Edom and the kings that emerge in that nation. We're told that there are kings in Edom long before there are kings in Israel. And I think the reason we're told all this is to show us that Edom is a very substantial nation in its own right. And in a wonderful way that prepares the way in our minds for, for what Israel will one day become. Because we have been told that Israel will become greater than Edom. Here's Edom emerging as a nation. And we know now to wait for Israel to emerge as a greater nation still. And of course... Those of us who know the ongoing story of God's word. We know that the kingdom of God, which will be established through Israel, will be the greatest kingdom the world's ever seen. And secondly, I think we see here that in spite of Esau's unbelief, his descendants have a future. They too under God have a story. Sometimes it can seem a bit harsh to us, I think, 
to see a nation like Edom sidetracked out of the center of God's plans. What are we to make of that? Well, surely the answer to that is that if a descendant of the nation of Edom, if a person like that today finds faith in Jesus Christ, then they will stand beside a member of of the nation of Israel and a member of all the other nations of the world. They too will be welcomed in the family of God's people. They too will be part of that that big crowd that we read of in Revelation chapter 7. A great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people and language worshipping. I think the story of Edom and of Esau reminds us that no one is beyond the grace of God. That God's grace has long arms. Let's pick up then and move very quickly through Genesis chapter 37. Now that we have that background in place. We've been looking in chapter 36 at Esau's family. And now the focus falls and will remain for the rest of Genesis on Jacob's family. Whenever we get into chapter 37, we see straight away that Jacob's family is as dysfunctional a crowd as it's possible to imagine. I don't know about you. Maybe you're like me. You think your family is the only wacky, dysfunctional family in the world. Are are you like that? I used to think that, but then I became a pastor and I got to meet some of your families. (laughs) Wacky families, dysfunctional families, they're all over. And certainly here, this covenant family, let's have a look. Deep, deep division in the families. Three times we're told in the first few verses that Joseph's brothers hate him. Verse 4, verse 5, and verse 7. And there are three reasons that emerge of why they hate him. He's telling tales. Of course they're going to hate somebody who tells tales. But then there's Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph. That wouldn't help. And then thirdly, Joseph's dreams. These dreams, these boasting dreams that he gets up and tells his brothers, not once but twice. Joseph's brothers hate him. And when we look at it, everybody in this family is sinning. Jacob's sinning. Jacob's sin here is his favoritism. And it's it's ironic, isn't it? He grew up in a household that was torn apart by favoritism. Cast your mind back. Do you remember his early life? Jacob grew up in a household where he was his mother's favorite. And where his brother Esau was his father's favorite. There was a sense in which that household was never a healthy family. Torn apart by favoritism. And the irony here is that exactly the same is playing itself out now in Jacob's family. I think Joseph's sinning too. When you read the commentaries and when you hear sermons about Joseph. Actually people seem to fall on two sides of the fence. There are people who think Joseph, Joseph's just uh, a pain in the neck at this point. There's nothing much good about him. It is the favoritism that he has from his father, his boasting dreams. And then there are others who say that, 
that Joseph's a, a wonderful, upstanding, uh, moral character in contrast to his brothers. It's no wonder that he's his father's favorite because he's the only good one among the 12. I'm inclined to see that there's probably truth in both of those. I think that Joseph is distinct from his brothers. I think that's part of the reason why they hate him. But I think the way he gets on, he demonstrates that he also has much to learn, that he's immature, that he's cocky, and that he's sinning at this point. So Jacob's sinning, Joseph is sinning, and the brothers' goodness. These guys are a disaster. To get a comprehensive picture of the sin in this family, we need to supplement what we have here in chapter 37 with what we've seen in some of the surrounding chapters. Chapters 34, 35, and 38 in particular, they, they contribute to our sense of who this family are, who these brothers are. There's a sense in which it's like a doctor's case notes. When we read page after page, we begin to build up a medical history of this family. So in chapter 35, you read about Reuben. What does Reuben do? Well, he sleeps with his stepmother. In chapter 34, you can read about Simeon and Levi, the next two sons in order of age. What do they do? Well, they go out and they kill an entire village as an act of revenge. In chapter 38, the passage which Monty dealt with so well for us last week, you can read about the, the next born son, the fourth Judah. He refuses to do his family duty and he gets caught out in his dealings with a prostitute. When you look at, at those chapters, when you look at these opening verses of chapter 37, we begin to get an idea of the kind of people God is working with. These are the covenant people. These are the people among whom God is, is shaping his salvation story. I think we have a couple of lessons that we can learn here. We see that Jacob's dysfunctional family life produces dysfunctional, sinful, evil sons. Jacob's families, Jacob's sons grew up in a turbulent, argumentative, broken home. And we see the result of it here. Incest, murder, prostitution and the like. They're all rife among Jacob's grown sons. Jacob is openly ashamed of them. And he admits as much. He says to his sons, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the people of this land. I shudder as I say it, but I, I suspect that it's true. And as the father of young children, I want to take it to heart at an early stage. A child's upbringing will work itself out in their lives. The biblical principle is that we reap what we sow. We see that worked out here in the life of Jacob and his sons. The second lesson that I, I think we learn from these, this full study of, of Jacob's family is that God has chosen the very worst material imaginable on which to found a nation. It's nothing short of astonishing. 
But we understand, I hope, that this is entirely the message of the New Testament and the message of the gospel. God chooses the worst. The weak, the sinful, the shameful and the despised. Those are the people he works with. People like me. And like you. We've begun by noticing the, the sin of Jacob's family. For all that we've said about Jacob's evil sons, there, there is one who stands out different, and it's Joseph. He's not perfect. He's spoiled and immature at this point in his life, but he is different. He's not involved in the gross evil of his brothers. And I suspect that, that part of the reason why he's his father's favorite son is because he stands out from these brothers. As we read on in the biblical record, we're going to discover that there's very little mention from here till the end of his life of any sin on Joseph's part. And that's quite unusual. Normally the biblical record is very honest about the failings even of biblical so-called heroes. But I think there's a reason for that. I think the narrator deliberately blanks Joseph's sin from the story because, because Joseph is going to emerge for us as a, as a wonderful, glowing example of a man of God. We've already said that he's going to emerge from this story as a type of Christ. Even in this early chapter, there's, there's one lovely aspect of Jake, Joseph's character that's flagged up for us in verses 12 to 17. Joseph's dad sent him to find his brothers near Shechem. Now that's a, a journey of about 50 miles. So we're imagining here that he's gone 50 miles on foot, two or three days journey. And when he arrives in Shechem, he finds his brothers right there. Now as a man who goes to the cupboard, when Claire asks me to find the rice, if I open the cupboard and I, the first thing I my eyes settle on isn't the rice, then I say, Claire, I can't find it. It's not there. Here's, here's Joseph. He's walked three miles, or three days, uh, under the blazing heat. He arrives there and his brothers aren't there. What does he do? They're not there. Turns and goes home. No. He, as he lingers there, he meets a man who says, yes, I saw them. They've gone another 15 miles to Dothan, another guts of a day's journey. Without any delay, without any hesitation, Joseph goes. He demonstrates here uh, an excellent quality, and we're going to see it uh, worked out in his life, a determination, a gutsy stickability, a, a sticking with something and at something. And, and I wondered as I read this, I wonder do I have that? I wonder do I demonstrate that? Or do I drop things at the first sign that things aren't working out? Do we have that, that loyalty and that stickability? Folks, I think that's a godly trait. Reading on this story, we might come to the premature conclusion that it would have been better 
for Joseph if he had never found his brothers. Joseph's brothers, remember, hate him. And the narrator tells us in verse 18 that even as they saw him approaching on the horizon, they were plotting how to kill him. We've already talked about the reasons why his brothers hated him. Yes, I think it is because of his father's favoritism. But I don't think that reason alone does justice to the biblical narrative. Joseph's brothers hate him because he kept himself separate from them. Because he kept himself pure in contrast to their evil. They hate them too because of his dreams. I don't think it's simply on the grounds of Jacob's bad parenting that Joseph was hated. I think it's inevitable that Joseph's brothers hated him. Friends, if, like Joseph, we hold true to the conviction that God has called us to be to be somehow separate from those around us, if we live these, these pure and good lives that we believe that God has called us to, I think that suffering will be equally inevitable for us. I think that is the straight and true teaching of God's word. To be identified 100% with Jesus Christ will bring suffering. Now, that doesn't sound palatable or, or even likely to some of us in, in our modern context. But I point you to, to a book like First Peter. See how often in that short letter of five chapters, Peter talks about suffering. Eighteen times. He says, says Peter, that it's inevitable that those identified with Christ will suffer. And I don't doubt that that's true in our generation too. I just wonder if we have found a way of, of sidestepping the things that God has called us to that would, would really expose us to, to ridicule and suffering that, that we would find if we were entirely faithful. Later on in, in Genesis, there's a flashback where we're told that Joseph wept when his brothers grabbed him and threw him in a pit. No wonder. Can you imagine being kidnapped by your own brothers? It's not mentioned here, but, but the psalmist tells us that the Ishmaelite traders, they, they put shackles on his wrists and on his ankles that hurt him. We're told here that he was sold for 20 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. Imagine it. Imagine being sold by your own family into some sort of a sweatshop in a far off land where you don't understand the language. Imagine working 16 or 17 or 18 hours a day for no reward. Joseph's dreams and his technicolor dream coat lie in tatters. Spare a thought for Joseph then as the chapter ends. Dragged along through the burning desert sands under the unrelenting Middle Eastern sun. Holy Land tourists make the journey that, that Joseph made. They make that one today. Maybe some of you have made it. The journey from, from Israel down into Egypt. 250 miles or so. You'd make it in 
seven or eight or maybe nine hours journey. Nowadays, you'd make that journey in an air-conditioned coach with chilled drinks in the freezer. But I'll tell you this, even then, you'd find it exhausting. Imagine then this journey of Joseph, chained to a camel, trying to keep up with its swift stride, going off to a, a hopeless future. Why God? Why God? Why? Why would you let this happen to me? His only fault is his purity and his integrity. We look at a situation like this and we wonder why God would let suffering like this come on the life of one who only tried to live right and well. Folks, we think that way. I think all of us do. But when we think that way, we think wrongly. We imagine that all suffering is evil. not the teaching of God's word. Again, I refer you to 1 Peter. Mark every time as you read it, a mention of suffering. And we discover there that suffering isn't something to, to flee from, but rather that it's part and parcel of the Christian life. It's the place where God will teach us much of what we must be taught if we are to grow you see, for Joseph, here he's been given a wonderful privilege, and that is to identify with Jesus Christ in his sufferings. Peter talks about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Joseph's cries and his pains here, they foreshadow the cross, the place where Christ suffered. And Peter explains clearly in his short letter that Christ suffered to leave us an example. We should follow in his footsteps and walk in his shoes. Joseph, led like a lamb to the slaughter, hated by his brothers, suffering for his goodness. Does that ring any bells? The chapter closes with the sons returning home to Jacob and they lie. Of course they do. Lying is entirely second nature to them. They produce a phony piece of evidence. They return home holding in their hand Joseph's beautiful robe, this time dripping in blood. And they ask, do you recognize him? Jacob comes to the inevitable conclusion that his son has been torn to pieces by a wild animal and is dead. Jacob is inconsolable. And folks, as we close here this evening, I think we see here a faint, shadowy picture of the grief of God the Father. The Father, whose son was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Who was beaten and bruised. Because we had hated him. Because we had gone astray. 
Because we've decided that we'd rather live lives of, of sin and evil and of corruption and of lies. You see how all the elements of the gospel are right here in Genesis 37. But friends, the glory of the gospel is that our Father God now offers his Son to us. He offers his Son as the way of pardon and forgiveness. The Father who loves his Son more than we'll ever understand calls us to receive the Son as the one who will save us from our sins and make us right. Can we now understand why the Father is full of wrath and of anger for those who reject his Son? How can we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Let us pray.